Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to the Political Party. Today's guest is Louise Casey, one of the most impressive public servants in modern British history, and really a public servant like no other. There really is no one else that has championed the causes that she's championed, held the post she's held, got the results she's got over such a period. So there's so much in this. And of course, as you'll be able to tell from looking at it, this is a long interview. This is two or so hours. Now, I know you might look at that and think, oh my God, I guarantee you every second is worth it. There's nothing I would take out of this interview. And even at the end of this, I thought there's still so much more. Now, once I got to two hours, I realized then I can't really let this interview go on longer, but I would love to get Louise back. And whether you listen to this in one go or whether you um, chop it up and listen to it over a, a couple of commutes or while you're cooking or wherever you listen, I guarantee I couldn't stop. It would have been irresponsible to stop this conversation before I did because there's just so much to talk to Louise about. And my God, this isn't just about politics. This is so many lessons about leadership, about how you get things done. Just how quickly Louise had to learn um, the skills that really have have made her the, the unique public servant that she is. So there is a heck of a lot in this. Um, don't forget, you can email the show politicalpartypodcast at gmail.com. After the Martin Angus polling day episode, a couple of you have been in touch because you wanted the um, posting peg. (laughs) I have forwarded those emails on to Martin. So hopefully, if you've been in touch wanting one of those posting pegs, if you're an activist, or you just want one as a a piece of memorabilia, then email the show, politicalpartypodcast at gmail.com. I'm not in charge of whether you get one or not. I pass them on to Martin, and if he deigns to look kindly upon your requests. So I take no um, responsibility for whether your wish is granted or not. Um, But, oh yes, and a week today, back on stage, oh my word, at the Garrick Theatre, with Peter Mandelson and Saeed Avasi, the 24th of May. There's a couple of tickets left. But in fact, by the time you hear this, it may have sold out. Um, The 25th has sold out. And there's a couple of tickets left for the 2nd of June with Jess Phillips and Esther McVeigh at the Vaudeville Theatre. They've come around so quickly. I'm so delighted. I can't wait. Um, Anyway, Louise Casey. This isn't just about politics. This is, at times, highly personal. I should say as well, really, really funny from the outset. Louise is brilliant company. And great to talk to, really candid, tell some great stories about how she talked to prime ministers and senior cabinet ministers. And uh, this is just, this goes from everything, it's got the lot. And some really very personal reflections from Louise about herself and her own life, um, about the way the tabloids talked about her, about the way they approached her family, but just, The main thing 
and that comes through every area that we talk about. And by the way, you, you should be warned, we talk about the Rotherham paedophile scandal. Um, Louise did a report into Rotherham Council's response to the official inquiry, and that as well is shocking, but it involves talking about um, some very shocking details. So just be warned when we're talking about the Rotherham paedophile scandal that does come up towards the end of the interview, um, there are shocking details in there. So I, I think it's only fair to warn you about that at the start. But whether it's her role as homelessness star, whether she's talking about the Rotherham paedophile scandal or whether uh, we're discussing social exclusion, integration, there's something unique about Louise that has led her to have the fantastic career that she's had really at the top of, of the civil service in these unique roles where she can ask these difficult questions, tell these uncomfortable truths, and that relentless drive that she's got, that failure to assimilate, and I mean that as a compliment, to not take the company line and accept no for an answer, but to force systems to change, to um, and on behalf of the most vulnerable people in society. So in a way, it's almost like talking to someone who's been in cabinet for 25 years because she's been involved in these huge issues some of the biggest and most difficult issues that we face as a society. And Louise has been at the heart of trying to solve so many of them and has got fantastic results and is still hugely empathetic, still driven, still impatient for change. And I mean, I'm a huge fan. So this is, uh, this is a really special and unique interview. It encompasses way more than I've even touched on here. But I guarantee, as I said at the start, Every second of this is priceless, so enjoy. I began by asking Louise how I should describe her and how, if she was asked, she would describe her own career or job description. God, I don't know, actually, Matt. Uh, an enormous pain in the ass to many governments, perhaps. Look, uh, I was on a business card, that. You know, <laughs> tell people the bleeding obvious, but they can't face hearing it. Uh... There's no other public servant, firstly, has held the number of high-profile uh, roles that you've held or been perceived in the same way as a troubleshooter for hire, a problem solver at the highest level. And I can't, I mean, I was probably too young to remember whoever would have been the, your predecessor in that role. But I think I'm right in saying you are the only person, really, that has had this sort of career. Yeah, I think... Um... So I think what happened when uh, Labour uh, pre-97 is obviously I think that they looked across, as lots of politicians do, they look, they look across at America and, you know, they get quite seduced, you know, they, they think, you know, the garden room in Downing Street is the equivalent of the wet swing, that type of stuff, you know, and uh, slightly ideas perhaps above our modest station, but it's not the right moment to be talking about Downing Street refurbs, is it? But you know, there's a lot <laughs> of Downing Street. Seriously, you wouldn't see on a West Wing set. Anyway, I've never actually been physically based in Downing Street. I've always been in departments for another reason, which is if, if you want to get something done, ideally, if you're doing a delivery program, you need to be in a spending department. You, you need to be in a department that does stuff, not just think and be political, which is largely number 10. But, was that um, something? Sorry, just to interrupt you. Was that something you understood initially? So when you first come in as the homelessness star, that's something no, you learned not, over time. Not at all. Not at all. Uh, only realized only realized that uh, like 
after time, really. I mean, look, you know, I arrived fresh in from Shelter. I was the deputy director of Shelter and I was the youngest director in Whitehall, actually, in the civil service, you know, just pushing Moira Wallace away by about six months. <laughs> she so was how there. old? So I was 32 or 33. My God, in. that's incredible. Yeah, it's a baby, a baby. Um, and anyway, I think Blair had had his head turned by czars. <gasps> what a concept. And, you know, they had a drug czar over in, in, in America and everybody's very excited by this concept of a czar. So they first of all employed a drug czar, who's this guy called Keith Halliwell. And you know, he was an ex-chief police officer. Was he the one who's called Robocop? Or something like that. Did no, that, no, that, he, that's um, that's Mallon. Oh. That's Mallon who became the mayor of Middlesbrough. That's right. That's right. Sorry. And they called him RoboCop. Yeah. Um, slightly different era. So they had this guy that obviously thought all his Christmases had come. He was going to be based in the cabinet office at seventy Whitehall, wooden panelled room. You know, flew in on helicopters. Lots of shaking hands with the prime minister. It's all terribly high profile. And I mean, he didn't last that long, actually, uh, because if you let your profile be bigger than the ministers you're working for, eh -eh, you're out you're a trap door, never get bigger than either your policy and certainly never overshadow ministers. And was that something you learned with experience? Oh, my God, I learned that one. <laughs> How uh, quickly? Well, not quickly enough, but... Uh, <laughs> I, meanwhile, I, meanwhile, who's like a kid, I was so chuffed to be, I mean, I never thought I'd get the job. And Mavis MacDonald, who was the now called a director general, who was my boss, she was, and she said in this, in my first week, she did an interview with the trade magazine, housing magazine. And she said, I've either, I've either been very, very stupid or very, very brave about my appointment. And Took several years, Matt, before she said very nicely to me. But, you know, I sweated that one out quite a long time before she said very, very brave. I still wasn't sure that was a compliment, but I adore her. The woman's great, actually. But um, I, meanwhile, coming in from shelter, they, they, A, the civil service didn't like the expression czar because obviously it confers power on somebody in a way which they're not used to. And, and it suggests unelected power, doesn't it? It suggests hereditary oh, power. Well, in... It depends whether it's a C or a T, I guess, doesn't it? You yeah, know, I, exactly. But um, uh, I always went for the C because the T means you're part of the R Russian royal family and you certainly end up dead uh, as far as I could see. So oh, don't we anyway. all? <laughs> <laughs> Unless this is one of the benefits of being well, a star, <laughs> that you're, you're immortal. I think that's the country's worst nightmare, the idea <laughs> I'm bloody immortal. She really is a survivor. No, but seriously, so I found myself in this little office next to the canteen at a place called Ashdown House. I thought this was fantastic. Yeah. So this was on Victoria Street. I not in the not in the building that the Secretary of State or any other minister was in. That was elsewhere. I was in an annex, basically alongside the people that did no word of a lie, bolder policy. Now, in Latin, bolder with a U in it. Yes. Not yeah, in that they were being bold. No, 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 no. Quite, <laughs> quite the opposite. Quite the opposite. No, this is the point I'm making. I was next to some very gentle people that seemed to worry about stones. Anyway, I realised years later that basically... Yeah, it, 
There was that. I mean, I might as well say all of this now. You know, I never do these interviews. You do know that I've done. Yes, no, I realise we're all very lucky to have you here. Very well, not lucky. That may be something you regret. But years later, I found my um, Jeremy Hayward's lot rang up and said it was after um, 2010, and they uh, they the um, what was it called social capital. What was the thing that Cameron called big society? Um, big society, right? So they got this guy in uh, to do big society and they'd made him a lord and they'd given him an office in 70 Whitehall. So I get this call from Jeremy's team saying, look, Louise, would you do us a favour and go along and have a chat with this chap? He's, he's finding it hard to find his feet within the civil service. And so I wander down to 70 Whitehall. I go in, I've, I find myself in some labyrinth before eventually I, <laughs> I find myself where the carpet stopped and literally you go down the staircase which is stone into a basement with those windows like you're in um you know in a prison oh yes and just windows that are at the top of the room just window. let the light at street level come street down level. so i literally walking through jeremy, hi jeremy's office hi 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 quieter and quieter and quieter the carpet stops you walk down stone steps and there's this really happy looking chap sat behind the desk. And I thought, how do I tell him he's screwed? And oh. <laughs> how do I tell him that, that basically, unless he works his way out of the basement into a, like a proper building with some staff, he's never gonna get anything done. And, and essentially that's, that's, that was the first thing I realized is, you know, you have to have a civil service with you um, because actually loads of them are absolutely fantastic people. And czars sit somewhere between civil servants and ministers in that we are, or I was, very publicly identifiable as being accountable for something very directly. I could never go, well, it's not my fault because of this, or actually, you know, civil servants will say ministers are in charge and ministers will say, well, God, the civil servants won't let me do it. And you get into these dynamics. And the other thing is, of course, and Mavis McDonald was fantastic on this, which is the civil servants they'd appointed to support me, which is the other thing that you do, you arrive to a team. And the first thing they did was write a note that I could give to Hilary Armstrong, now Baroness Armstrong, who is the local government minister of state, which shows you how important this was because they gave it to her. That's the other thing. The other trick is what level you're reporting into. So even though all of these czars arrive and they think Tony or Cameron or Theresa's appointed them, actually you rarely see the Prime Minister and you've just got to be really careful about overusing that patronage because, you know, they all come in thinking they're going to be sat in Downing Street making, you know, international decisions on global big shit and they find themselves next to the bolder people in the canteen on Nashdown House trying to work out how the hell they're going to get this job done. I mean, it is quite something to come in from the outside. And of course, because so, I was so young, Matt, and so driven, I mean, you know, I've been an outreach worker, I've been a volunteer, I'd worked my way up, I'd, you know, I, uh, I had the privilege of working alongside people like Nick Hardwick and Julia Unwin and Claire Tickell, who were all like leading figures in homelessness. Then I got a stint, fantastic stint at Shelter. I was like, get in, we're gonna, we're gonna end raw sleeping. What's not to look at, this is great. And the note on my desk, so kind was, dear minister, this is a very stretching target. 
And I think we need to be aware before we get involved in this, that it's very likely that we won't meet it, but we will get some good work done and we will be able to have a good story to tell. And I was like, right, rip that up. That's fucking, I'm in that. You know, I was 33, I was like, I thought, like, oh my God. So, so I get them in and I go, hi everyone. So nice to be with you all. If you don't think we can meet this target, then go find yourself another job. I mean, I was horrific. I mean, absolutely horrific. There was nothing polished about me at all. And so then I had to get people in from the outside. And then we had civil servants that were amazing and they all felt it was a, you know, a good place to be. And by the end of it, um, Hayward and co used to think if they wanted to, civil servants to experience, I quote, the front line, <laughs> they'd send them to me <laughs> you know, well, and you but, would take them to the front line or you were well, the front line it depends what they were wearing doesn't it you know, <laughs> you know, if they turn up with a barber and suede shoes that, right off you go mate go and change into something proper before i let you out again you know it <laughs> so when when you're in this basement obviously recently after the haywood call you effectively go back down that basement and do a favour to someone who was basically in your position. Did anyone come down those stairs to you and say, look, Louise, friendly word of advice, you need to get yourself in the department? Did you have allies, even if they were strangers that would help you out in that way? Well, Hillary, Hillary was, but, you know, they were all new as well. So what was really interesting is the, the 97 um, ministerial team, and I arrived just at the beginning, by the time all of the arguments over the unit where it was going to be cited what level it was going to be all of which i didn't know was happening but the six months between being offered the job that was extraordinary i thought that was never going to happen uh and then starting the job there was like a protracted period where because ours were new you know and they were a new concept um and and it's not really written down is it so actually in the in the press notice original press notice said uh, London coordinator for the Rough Sleepers unit and then Downing Street, which I assume is Mr Campbell, it turned into, you know, Prime Minister appoints today, Rough Sleepers are. And the people that, I mean, remember, they did a really clever thing, which actually I think this lot should, should have done or should still do, is Labour did a really clever thing, is not only did they have a social justice commission in the run-up to 97, where they were actually actively looking at serious policy and what they should do about it so that they were ready on day one or, or day 100. The second thing they did, which they did really quickly, is they established this thing called the Social Exclusion Unit. And the Social Exclusion Unit was led by Moira Wallace, who was an ex-Treasury and number 10 official and wanted to do things differently. And, you know, she's a proper, she was a proper civil servant, uh, but she had, um, like Mavis MacDonald, just an eye to doing things differently and a desire for things to change. And they saw the 97 intake as a way of doing policy differently. So I had allies, um, you know, people like Jeff Mulgan, who's like some new Labour giant now, he was like just a policy wonk in Downing Street. And I used to think, I don't understand a word he said, but he seems like a nice lad. <laughs> I mean, seriously. And he probably didn't understand a word I said either, but you know, he, he would, you know, people had lunch and I, you know, never had lunch. Lunch wasn't a concept I really understood, you know, you just, you know, and I don't now actually, but it, it was just all so, so bizarre, somebody in Downing Street. And the other thing they did, which I found really interesting is, 
I'm probably saying way too much. This should all be in. in oh, this is all off the record. Don't worry, it'll go nowhere. So, so they did this really weird thing, which I find really odd, and it's not just civil servants. It's it, it's it's politics as well, which is they first of all, I the first meeting in Downing Street was with policy people, a mixture of policy people and advisors, and it was right at the top of Downing Street. Now I'm no slim person now but I can assure you then I was even less slim and even less fit. So I had to walk all the way up to the top and I was on my own because I didn't realize till Tessa Jowell told me, never attend a meeting on your own again. Like you always come with somebody and then they take a note and then that note goes into the system. Oh, okay, nobody tells me that. So I want, I think, oh, go to Downing Street. This is so exciting. Arrive in Downing Street, so excited. And, you know, I walk up these stairs, I can barely breathe. And, you know, they're sat in this massive circle and I sit down in front of them and nobody says who they are. I, I mean, I didn't know who they were. So they started asking me questions about rough sleeping. So I go, hang on guys, it's mainly men. I think it's nearly all men. Oh, hang on guys, back up a minute. I've no idea who any of you are. Like, if I tell you who I am, can you all tell me who you are, what you're doing here, and why are you asking me questions? Hi, I'm Tony Blair. I'm the Prime Minister. Yeah. I'm Gordon Brown. I'm the Chancellor. Oh, fuck, <laughs> wrong room. I'm so sorry. <laughs> they wouldn't be made to walk up those stairs, I can tell you that, Matt. <laughs> so, yes, it was a really... It was a really... It was a really to get your head around that system and that way of working, which of course was, you know, really modern and unusual was, but you know, I had, I had a, my job was anchored. You know, I didn't realize that it was going to be so unusual that I do street work every week and people would think that was odd. I didn't, didn't realize that people thought that, you know, I would go out unannounced and I'd go out with an outreach worker and, you know, six, 12 months in, I'd have a literally a fight with some, not physical fight, but I'd like be on the phone to some poor unsuspecting hostel that's decided it won't accept anybody because it's nine o'clock and it's a bit inconvenient. And I'd just take the phone and go, hi, Louise Casey here. Don't know whether you know, but I run Rough Sleeping Strategy. And as far as I can see, you're being funded to take this person. So I'll be over shortly. And Amazing. I used to just rock up with them. It just test. I didn't realise then that was all, you know, you could call that something clever, couldn't you? Mystery shopping, testing delivery strategy, amber, red, green. You know, I can dress it up. I, I, I can do that now, Matt. But at the time, I just thought all of this stuff was, you know, I was poacher turned gamekeeper, wasn't I? So, and, and you know, it was, it was a time as well where people really, really wanted to end rough sleeping. as like the sector wanted it um, and there was a lot of hope wasn't there around that Labour um, government so people wanted them to be successful as well and I think the politics of rough sleeping are complicated. Yes but you had such a personal impact and I think what I mean obviously huge strengths that you possess but what that story contains is a, is a real thing that I think so many people go oh I I, I know that's the right thing to do, but I don't have the guts to do it, which is when you say, sorry, who are you? I need to know your names. Is that that's what everyone going into that situation would want to ask. And it's on the people who didn't introduce themselves to you. It's their fault, not yours. But that basically asking the awkward, obvious question, actually so few people do it. I think that, that, that you know, 
when I left the civil service, and obviously I, I, I've got a while to work yet, and you know, some income to raise and some mortgages to pay. And I did think right at the beginning, I was looking at what other people do and like they have websites and it says things like, you know, I'm an interpreter, I'm an interlocutor and all these sorts of, you know, rhyming that. And I said to Tracy, uh, Tracy Paul, who, whom you know, I went, yeah. God, Tracy, what are we going to say? Am I going to say, you know, the dame that will, you know, tell you the bleeding obvious, but you can't face it yourself? or you know, ask all the difficult questions because you need somebody to ask those difficult questions. You know, is it money for a rope, really? That actually, why can't people, why can't people ask the difficult questions? Because in really difficult things, it's never, I, uh, I, I said, said this years ago, I find it really interesting that having worked close to the two politicians that on the whole, male politicians, and this is probably, you know, I can get away with it because I'm a woman. This is called post-feminism, Matt, so I can say what I like about you lot. But if you say <laughs> anything about me, I'll have you. Let's just be clear of the terms. Oh, that's but, fair to yeah. yeah. I'm aware of the rules. I remember thinking, you know, you've got, basically, it's like wandering around a man with a hammer with a nail, and they think that the solution to something is either law, so it's all about putting laws through Parliament, Blair, or it's all about fiscal so everything's about fiscal changes, tax credits, that type of stuff. And I remember, obviously, this might have been one of the reasons I ended up in the salt mines for a bit under the Gordon Brown era. But I remember saying to him, look, you know, this isn't easy to put, but actually no amount of laws will necessarily tackle um, the problems of you know, vulnerable families, problem families, troubled families, whichever language, whichever party, whichever policy discipline you come from, isn't necessarily going to sort out. Money will help, but I've met plenty of families where basically the bloke in the household will drink your tax credits away. In fact, I put it much more brutally and cautious, you know, I said you, they'll piss them off the wall as they'll drink them away. And I think the, the, the problem with a lot of public policy in difficult areas is, you know, they, they brought, you know, Jack Straw came up with ASBOs, not me, um, and, you know, nobody was using them. And, you know, they were like, well, put this law through parliament. It's a fantastic piece of legislation, and, you know, really help communities. And basically there were two things. First of all, the liberal intelligentsia didn't like them because they weren't criminal and therefore they were an alternative to that. I think that they were uncomfortable with the idea that on like challenging housing estates, there is more antisocial behavior or crime than otherwise. And, you know, I think they got themselves all caught up about it. So there was no push behind them. And yet, you know, I kept, I mean, when I got the call, I, I finished off, you know, I'd done the rough sleeping thing and I thought, right, job done, job done. On you go, kid. Uh, let's go back out and, you know, go and do something else. And so I'd said to them in Downing Street, you know, look, you know, I've done the rough sleeping thing. We're going to bring it in. We brought it in early. Uh, we promised the sector. And I think this is this is a really, really interesting thing that political cycles make this really hard. So one of the reasons that goes beyond my time in the rough sleeping strategy was we not only met the target, it was maintained. So the numbers did not go back up for close to a decade. One, because we changed the system and we'd, we'd um, incentivized 
the system to work with people off the street. And the second thing is, is we said, we'll stay with you. So I used to say to say um, organizations that ran outreach on the street, look, we will stay with you when you're working with Louise when she's off the street. And actually some of them like Thamesreach and St. Mungo's in London and others in different cities knew that I create a relationship with you, Matt. You actually think that I, you can trust me. You haven't been able to trust many people. You've been out for quite a long time. I then get you in and I stay with you, as it were, on when you're in so that you have the same person working with you. And you know that's that will sound so obvious to so many people listening to your program, but I can assure you, it's like you know they'd call that rocket. You know they would say that's rocket science. You know some things are so bleeding obvious if you look at it from the person you're helping, but actually our system was very very. You know you get worked with here in this bit of the system, you get somebody else work with there. So we persuaded the sector that just because the numbers had dropped, we wouldn't withdraw the money. And to be fair, um, they didn't. Uh, uh, and that goes beyond uh, my, my time. And the other thing was, which was really interesting for me, which I keep trying to say to people is, you know, when we got to the end of rough sleeping um, and we brought the target in and uh, all the rest of it, you know, they turned around to me and said, right, okay, what next? And I thought, let's go for children in B&B. Who knew? Get in, second cause job done and I was sat in this meeting and uh, this civil servant who I adore a guy called Neil O'Connor so, so so what next so I go children in bed and breakfast I really hate bed and breakfast hotels it's not the right place for us to bring up children I'd like to end that please and so um, it was Blair and Byers and they went so what do you want so I looked at Neil and went what do I want <laughs> <laughs> and Neil said she wants a change in law and she wants about 30 million so I went I'd like a change in law and I'd like 30 million and we did <laughs> I mean somebody else finished it off after I gone but you know they delivered it I just got the money in the the law change you make government so, sound so easy I make government it's not it's it's a constant constant ducking and diving and pushing water up a hill but the point I'm making is that people you know there's something about um funding success rather than funding failure and in a lot of a kind of the trickier end of social policy a lot of the time you're dealing with the frailty of humanity mm -hmm. and the frailty of humanity we are all frail in some way I you know I, I certainly am and you know I think a lot of the time then what you end up doing is is funding failure. So I think right now, for example, if I flash forward to the present day, the government is spending 750 million a year on rough sleeping um, and the prevention of rough sleeping. I mean, that's a boggling amount of money. That's much more than we got on troubled families in the same department. And yet I think they're spending it in the wrong place. They're spending it on the symptom, not on the cure. So those things are those things are hard to persuade ministers. But you know, I, I've I've had you know a decade of Blair and um and you know fantastic ministers. And you know, there was an informal group of ministers, people like um Tessa Jowell and Margaret Hodge, oh. and you know, Tessa. Well, I, I call her Tessa now at the time, I, you know, she, she did two incredible things, Matt, for me. And actually, you, we're recording on the, it's the third anniversary of her passing away today. And Tessa, I, I again, you know, didn't, so I got, I, I, I was right, right, okay, okay, right. I've got to stop this kids leaving care with nothing. Uh, so, you know, th this 
seems impossible now, doesn't it? But actually we used to discharge children from care at 16 with a black bin liner. Um, they had no rights. Everything that's happening now isn't good enough, Matt, but they, they, had, they had nothing. And, you know, this was what people like Tessa wanted to change. You know, that's what they, that's, that's what they, they wanted. Anyway, I wander over to see her and went to another lovely office um, somewhere in the Department of Health on Whitehall. I mean, I was living the dream. And of course, she's got a load of civil servants there. And I just sat, sat there and I would say thing. I just walked in and went, right, uh, Minister, uh, she had called me Tessa. They were all, it was called me Tony, called me Tessa. You know, it was all of that. So call me Alan, um, AJ. Love Alan Johnson. <laughs> All right, mate. Um, and uh, and I said to Ted in this group, and they said, "Well, it will take legislation." And I said, "Look, they've just you know they've only been here a year. They can put legislation through Parliament. It's like we have we have to do this. It's like these are vulnerable children who we are discharging to the streets. I cannot meet my target on rough sleeping if we don't prevent the flow of people to the streets." And the one that I am, and Tessa Giles just turned around and went, I completely agree with her. This is what I want you to do, blah, blah, blah. She chucked them all out and she said, you can't come to these meetings on your own. You've got to play the system right. You're not, you're not playing the system right as a civil servant. And I said, what do you mean? She said, well, you know, I have a briefing telling me what they think you're gonna raise with me and what I should send, say to you in return. So I was thinking, oh, this was like week three. It's like, oh, briefing, this is interesting. I want to see what they're telling these ministers before I come and see them. So you learn all the time, don't you? And then, um, and she said, do you need to have somebody with you as well or else they won't take you seriously. They'll just think you're somebody that will come and go. And if you're serious, you need to play this civil service role properly. It was quite, a, you know, it's quite a moment. So I said, all right, go, and off I went. And then I remember taking her to a night shelter a cold weather shelter down in Vauxhall and um I was like I just think we're not you know I'm worried that we're not going to be good enough it's not just the numbers Tessa I, I was like I'm worried you know I can meet I can meet their target you can meet targets Matt there's always a way to meet a target people that don't think you can meet targets they're not in the right job the issue is how you meet them yeah and I was you know and I still am oddly uh, you know, care quite a lot. And I said, I'm really worried that we won't get to these very vulnerable kids. And, you know, all we're doing is putting them in this cold weather shelter. And she said to me, she said something that was really, she said, look, Louise, if nothing else, you're shining a light on them and that light is love. And they might experience that for the first time in their lives. And you're part of making that happen for them. So do not lose hope on the small, small wins. And then the second sheet, second sheet, it's just, and if you keep that as your driving force, I've every sense you'll 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 do the big win. Because for me, and for a lot of people in the charitable sector, we were concerned about people who've been out on the streets for years. So think about this now. I mean, the numbers of people on the streets had gone up and up and up, and from Thatcher onwards, basically, we we started to see this phenomenon of rough sleeping. I was working for the Social Security in Brixton when they changed the benefit rules for 16 to 18 year olds and for 18 to 25 year olds. And by night I was volunteering in a night shelter. And we went from very few people coming into the six bed night shelter to queues on Shaftesbury Avenue. It was like a light switching on and off. And that, that was the awakening for me that I couldn't just work in the social security. I needed to do something more. I'm talking too much. No, no, no. This is this is the this is the show for long and detailed answers. 
Um, I'm interested in how you kind of learn how to, you know, the rules you learned and the character you've got. So obviously you learn fairly early on that you need to be inside the department, that being in this, in this um, basement isn't enough. And you kind of set, I mean, I guess what I was going to ask about was about the role of czars and whether, you know, we, we were sort of pondering this question, why don't people ask the obvious difficult question? And sometimes actually, depending on where you sit in that power structure and the dynamic within it, you potentially put yourself at risk or, you know, ridicule at the very least or of highlighting failings of your superiors who might not take kindly to you raising it. If you create this new role of a czar, that, that, that you're kind of one foot in, one foot out, aren't you? You're, you're accountable then for that team, but actually you can demand answers of that team that they might not have given to other people. Is that the sort of logic of the role? I think the, I think the logic of the role, um, certainly in the, in the way that I've done it, is that what you get is a dedicated, it's like being, well, dare I say it, it's like having a ministerial portfolio, but only one thing. And actually, you also don't have to get yourself elected and you don't need to go to Parliament. Your minister does that. I mean, who your minister is, is really important because ministers have to have broad shoulders if they have czars mm. um, because they take up space. The upside is, which is occasionally what happened to me, is you find yourself the only person that's defending use of antisocial behaviour orders um, and, and, you know, you look round. You, you, you look round in the ring, as it were. They, you, you're, you're on, you're on the Today program against somebody like Shami Chakrabarti, who just hates them, and you're up against her, and you're looking round, thinking, you know, where's the minister coming in to help? And like, they're nowhere. They'll decline all of those interviews, and they leave you to them. So, the upside is that you, you have more power, um, and that's quite an important thing. You, you can put light on something that you, I believe that you need to have a very clear goal I never say yes well I've learnt so when um, the Cameron government came and asked me I was the victims commissioner and when they came and asked me you know he, he'd made a speech about um, turning around the lives of troubled families he named a figure um, and I thought they I thought at the beginning they were doing such a bad job on crime I assumed that Hilton wanted to talk to me about crime because I was like are you the Tory party <laughs> I is hug a hoodie mate and then it's like you know uh anyway um they didn't want to talk to me about crime they wanted to talk to me about uh troubled families and problem families which was all Hayward I think Hayward was behind some of that stuff and but what I did I said what I'll do first is, is, is have a look at what's going on for you and whether I think, so I did, I've done that a couple of times, Matt. I've had a look at something and tried to work out, you know, whether the machine will deliver it for them or not and what, if anything, then they need to do. And the Troubled Families one is quite interesting because he'd made this commitment. And then what happens is, of course, that's his commitment and, um, actually the prime minister really only has one power, which is to hire and fire his, the reshuffle. I mean, at the end of the day, they may think they're incredibly powerful, but actually their powers are pretty limited from Downing Street in terms of legislation. You know, they have to do it through a process of their secretaries of state. And actually one of them, I won't say whom said, the only power I have is to hire and fire ministers. So I want you to do what it is I want you to do. Um, prime minister said that to you. Prime minister said that, yeah. 
Yeah, he, he was she. They. <laughs> yeah, I'm trying to they. trying to at least narrow it down. Um, okay, and and was Mr. Cameron happy when he said that, or? Very nice, Matt. It was David Cameron actually <laughs> that said that. Yes. Um, because 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 what was yeah you could tell. Can you? I mean, what was interesting about it though is that they were doing that classic thing, right? So, it's not a bad thing to want to try and find who are the families in the country that are struggling the most, but that struggle is coming out in very high levels of crime, kids not attending school, um, and uh, worklessness. And, you know, for all the banter and backwards and forwards, I don't, you know, that's fine by me, actually. I'd quite like to help those families. Anyway, that summer, and I remember coming and meeting what was called the Quad, actually. God, that's- Oh, yes. Yes, I met the Quad. So that was Danny Alexander, George Osborne, David Cameron, and oh, oh, Alexander. Um, Nick Clegg. Really oh, Nick Clegg, of course. God, God, take that out of your podcast. <laughs> um, but what had happened is basically, Prime Minister says he wants this done. Whitehall departments and ministers then do. I'm doing, you do what I call, it's the lines to take strategy of dealing with something. So what happens is everybody says, I'm doing amazing work. He's contributing towards turning around the lives of 120,000 families because I've got apprenticeships and three people got one last week. Somebody else will say, I'm absolutely all over your goal, Prime Minister, of meeting the target on troubled families because, you know, I'm responsible for literacy and, you know, 500 people were more literate last week. And then, yeah, somebody from the Home Office will turn up and say, oh, I'm all over your strategy, Prime Minister. Uh, uh, and what they've got, are your classic, this is Tessa, right? Lines to take. Meeting with the Prime Minister, Louise Casey's gonna be sat with him. And I went to see all these people on my own. And actually, I don't think Eric Pickles will mind you telling me the story because it's quite Eric. And so I went around all these people and I basically went to them and said, look, this is your classic, right? You, you either accept it's a line to take, right? And somebody can construct that for you in the civil service. So every time you're asked about this, you can talk about the good work that's happening in apprenticeships and literacy and knife crime. And that is good work, but it won't add up to what you think you want, but you can use that and it's good. So it's not the end of the world or you have to literally set up a unit, find a load of money, a delivery mechanism, go and find the families and sort them out. What the civil service will do and what your gut instincts, all of you in this room right now, is to do a middle option, which is you basically tinker in the middle. And my advice to you is do one or the other. It's not for me to tell you which one to do, but I'm telling you now you'll be told to do the middle one and it will fail. And it will be at the end of the day, you won't turn around any troubled families and you'll probably just interfere with people doing knife crime and literacy and other stuff. And this was before. And then, so your man, uh, Cameron says to me now, um, well, you know, would, would, you, would, you, would you be prepared to help us then? And I said, well, I'll, I'll only do the proper thing. Right, okay, right, right, right. So then I didn't know, of course, Jeremy doesn't, you know, he just lets you walk into these wolf traps and just, you know, you probably got some, I mean, I think he used to enjoy, enjoy the entertainment of watching me just be so completely unguarded and straight with people. And I would go, well, the only thing is, I, mean, I don't know what department we can do that from. Anyway, so I didn't know that basically there was a bit of a, if, if, if this model came off, there was a bit of a war going on between which Secretary of State would take responsibility for it. 
Anyway, I'd been to see Eric Pickles in the early bit, like what was his department contributing to doing this? And Eric had said to me in this meeting, in front of everybody, I sat next to him in his freezing cold room, and he said to me, right, Miss Casey, can I just make something absolutely clear to you? The last thing we need round here is some bloody Tsarina coming in here and telling me what I need to do on families. If you could take that message back to number 10, I'd be very, very grateful. So I was like, well, this is going to be so flash forward now three months. You know, I had this little meeting, done the review, sit down with the quad, tell them all blah, blah, blah. I find myself at five o'clock the same day back in Eric Pickle's room and I go, now, Secretary of State, I was just thinking that if, and I literally mimicked, that bloody Tsarina was me and I reported to you, do you think we're going to get along? He went, I quite like the idea of having you as my bloody Tsarina. I think we're going to get along fine, Miss Casey. And we did. Wow. We did straight from the outset. And, you know, politically, policy-wise, in different places. But the thing about something like problem families is the left will come to it as this is about poverty and you need to, it's an equalities issue to rise them above and out of it. And certainly the Cameron-esque and the Theresa Mays would look at this as you've got to make sure you look after the poor and that those people should have a shot at improving their lives. So very different policy ideologies driving it, but somebody like me can grip it in the middle and, and manage it. Do you see what I mean? Yeah. And, and sometimes it, I make it sound easy. It's not easy. You know, I was so nervous when I went to see, and I came out of that last thing we need with some, I mean, literally I blushed red all the way down in DCLG lift thinking, you know, what a bleep bleep that bloke is. And then I, you know, and I just thought I'm going to have to out this, I'm going to have to do it. So I said, can somebody get me in to see uh, Eric Pickles this afternoon? Because there's no point, there is no point. There's no point in that job, in these jobs, there is no point having a straight, you have to have a straight relationship with the minister or the secretary of state. And we did. One of your great assets is, I guess Talking telling it like it is, telling truth to power, which is a good question. <laughs> In, uh, in politics sometimes. Just thinking of the prime ministers you dealt with, do you think most of them actually appreciated having you in the room being direct and that most of them would rather hear from you or someone like you in the sense that someone who is a, a civil servant or quasi-civil servant or whatever that will tell them difficult truths and say, actually, this bit isn't working, that bit isn't working, rather than effectively a bit of bullshit? I, my experience is the answer to that question is yes. I, I think some of them, uh, uh, and this is Secretary of States and Ministers, I think some of them find that more difficult than to know what to do with it or not. Um, you know, let's take somebody that wasn't a Prime Minister for terribly long, Theresa May. I mean, her thoughtfulness around uh, and deliberation around the issue of domestic violence, um, exceptional. Um, you know, and just wanting to find the right thing to do in the right way and was prepared to think about it and deliberate. I mean, I've worked for some great people. Um, Jackie Smith was a phenomenal Home Secretary. Alan Johnson was a phenomenal Home Secretary. John Reid 
Um, John Reed on his first day, I went up to see him because uh, I knew Steve Bates, his special advisor from GMTV years when just, you know, going. And I, <laughs> I said to him, now listen, uh, Home Secretary, the trick here is not to be carried out in a coffin. <laughs> <laughs> I said, that's what happens to Home Secretaries. Because you think about it, Matt, it's a really tough job and they normally end up in tears, actually. Um, yeah, there's, there's, there's some very funny story to tell with with John Reed, um, he speaks French very well. Oh, yeah. he's a and fascinating he's bloke. Fascinating bloke, but no, people are always so. One of the things I feel a bit sad about is is the demise of how the public perceive politicians. I've I've been on that journey throughout, and obviously I've seen. You know, I, I find it hard when people aren't straight. Uh, and I have experienced people not being straight with me and not being able to tell me to my face what they think. And I find that hard. Um, Do you call them on it? I have done. Senior politicians? Yes. Prime ministers? No, I've never had to do it with a prime minister. Um, but senior cabinet ministers. And, and uh, how's that gone down when you've said, I don't think you're telling me the truth? Or, or, or did you choose a punchier set of words? Well, I mean, I, you know, it doesn't go down well. Um, uh, to, be, to be completely honest, you know, I, I am not the most sophisticated operator when it comes to these things. But, you know, if I believe I've had the gift of being able to do things that I truly believe in, um, and not everybody gets that, Matt, you know, if, if you ask me to... Like in the old days when, you know, Michael Barber was, you know, crafting out what delivery looked like with green, amber and red. I was like, seriously, can somebody else attend that meeting? I was like, you know, and I like Michael and I understand what he's doing and I respect what he's doing. But I'd go mental having to do something like that. <laughs> you know, it just isn't 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 what I can do. Whereas if somebody says to me, there's this really. You know, how would you, I don't know, right now, I'd like us to eradicate the need for food banks. I think one of the, the worst things that we now have in this country is there are more branch, more food banks than branches of McDonald's. So this is a really interesting example, because I was going to ask you about, and it's a great one to explore, I was going to think of a hypothetical problem. But earlier when you talked about how you find these solutions, and when you talked about the current government's spending £750 million a year on rough sleeping but spending it on the problem not the solution and finding delivery models and all that so just as a kind of exercise let's say tomorrow you say to the prime minister yes i'm going to help you eradicate food banks to the layperson how do you go about doing that well i mean it's cl classic technique really isn't it so basically you have to go out and collect not only evidence and information but you have to meet people and work out what's happening in their lives and, and my guess is we'll find and that's what I've done with every job Matt I, I've gone out I've listened I, I, I put myself in the place that we're trying to do something about um, or because the solutions normally lie in the street or they lie in the family or they lie in the housing estate you know that's your classic um, difference so one of I'm on perfectly publicly on record for the fact that universal credit which is the benefit you know our new benefit system which you know is is a great policy idea that you pull all benefits together in one place 
it just beggars belief to me that we originally and still do to a large extent expect people to wait five weeks before we give them their benefit and actually during the height of last year when we were moving from three million people to UC to six I can tell you now because I've been working in and out of food banks and pop-up food banks and uh, many people weren't getting it even within the five weeks back in Doncaster 62 percent of the population of Doncaster who are working are on daily weekly or fortnightly pay so so who made up a system then that was based on monthly pay and holiday pay like was that anyone that actually has a clue about the real world of people on low income on zero hours contracts no it's somebody that's tucked away nicely on paye and then once the die is cast then ministers have to stand up and defend it you know i i i often wonder about these things really which is you know honest to god sometimes you listen to them defend things and you think seriously <laughs> and go i have absolutely no intention of standing on my two feet and justifying this yeah. at the dispatch box or on the today program it's like find me a solution but of course they often don't because you get caught up in this is the government's position people are telling you have to take it um, sorry, I'm rambling all over the place, but what you know, when I worked in uh, social security, which was under the last uh, uh, Tory government uh, in, in the John Major period, we were able, using supplementary benefits, as they were called then, to give people, we would look at their pay slips, and if they were paid weekly, they'd get their money at the end of the week. If they were paid fortnightly, they'd get their money at the end of the fortnight. I think the first thing is that you have to have a very clear de decision, you know, like, reduce rough sleeping by two thirds, um, reverse the upward trend in antisocial behavior, um, uh, increase the confidence in the criminal justice system. Um, that was a funny one, Matt. You, you, you can imagine un, under a rather wet labor government wanting to introduce orange jackets. That said community service on them all. What was the phrase? Oh, wait, wait, wait. I wanted it to say community punishment, needless to say, because, you know, I went to an Irish Catholic school and <laughs> you knew about consequences and... Um, Surprised you wanted an orange march. Well, well, originally, were they orange jackets or were they... We wanted high, you know, day glow. You know, we wanted them to be high-vis. Luminous, yeah. Luminous. Because, basically, I mean, the the... The policy being that basically the public clearly don't think that anything that isn't locking somebody up is punishment. Would you still so, do that now, by the way? Would you still agree with boiler-suited chain gangs of young oh, yobs? Now, look at you. You see, you're just showing your Guardian Easter. Oh, <laughs> I mean, I that's the first time I've ever been called a Guardian. Rare, rare moment for you, Matt. <laughs> the Guardian would be horrified. They'd be utterly horrified. As the I, I would certainly stick with high vis jackets and community payback, um, be, because I think, and yes, I absolutely think the public would be with us one hundred and ten percent. Because the problem we've got, and we still have it, is that the public do not think community service is a punishment or is a consequence in any way. And of course, you know, those, I mean, I can understand that there's a part of me that feels a little, gosh, wow, that's quite tough. Um, but actually, 
it's it's less tough than completely wrecking somebody's life by putting them in prison for six weeks, where essentially you create, you know, you know what, 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 what did that guy say to me once? Um, I took Phil Wheatley, he used to run the prison service. He said, we have one moment to stop a kid going any further and it's the night before they go into prison. But once they're in prison and, you know, we have the wings, God, God, thank God, where actually for young, young people, we essentially don't put them straight on a wing, you know, if they're vulnerable. But essentially, once you've done time, Matt, it, it, it's a slippery slope that you'll yeah. do more time because the fear of it has gone and you've survived it. And what he said to me is it's that moment before where they're asking for their mum uh th that actually you, you want to get them to do something else and that's where community payback came into its own because essentially also the public could see it um and that they knew that people were doing it to pay back for crime and i think that's a good thing but you know there's a hilarious moment where i you know i'm sat in my office as per usual like the dino you know the dinosaur in something i'm in the thick of it swearing my head off about something or other and, um, you know, there'd been some meeting that I wasn't invited to, another classic technique, take decisions while she's not around, particularly if it's not your department. So it's, if it's your department, it's very hard to avoid me being there. If it's not your department, you can have a little interministerial or inter-conversation inter with officials and decisions made. So then somebody report, I got a call actually from the person from Downing Street who had been saying, you're not, you're not gonna like this, Louise. You, you, you're not going to like it. I said, what am I not going to like? And uh, they go, it's, um, you know, you know, that community payback thing. Well, they've turned it into a logo. So I go, Ooh. have they now? Have they now? What do you mean a logo? And they're like, well, it's like a, you know, it's like arrows that go around in a circle. Oh, I remember that. That was the respect agenda. Give respect, get respect. Tell me about it. I, that was one of my mates. So I, I liked that. Well, of course you like that, yeah. Oh, was yeah. it not a good? Should I not have liked no, it? No, it's good. It's in my more liberal days. Um, <laughs> but... I thought the respect agenda was seen as the tough thing. Yeah, well, tell me about it. Anyway, so, no, so, they, so they took the words community payback off this thing. God, give me strength. God, give me strength. So I have to pick up the phone and go, be really helpful to have a call with and of course then they try avoid calling so then you ring their spads and you say look this isn't going to end prettily it's like this has been agreed by the prime minister um and the home secretary i think in the order of hierarchy in the ministerial order they trump your minister of state in whichever department you're in and so like either i can make this happen or you can just choose to make it happen and then, but you know, we almost went from an agreed policy of community payback to a tiny logo on some orange little high vis, so nobody would feel awkward about it. And, you know, oh, I've had so many of those moments, I can tell you, but you were asking me about why I would start, you know, the answer to food banks and the use of food banks, I think will possibly be more interesting than just handing out more food. And of course, some of it will lie in the fact that we've currently got the lowest level of personal benefit to single people since 1990. And that people using food banks, a couple using food banks are on an average of eight quid a day between them for everything, everything, lecky, gas, council tax, 
cleaning materials, you know, tampons, whatever, everything, every, tram, you know, to, to be with Andy Burnham on the cost of trams in, 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 G, in Greater Manchester on four quid a day. So, you know, our benefit levels are not fit for purpose and they're trapping people in poverty rather than helping them out. But it won't just be about that. It won't just be about that. Because earlier when you said um, about, you know, what the Labour solutions are and what the Tory solutions are, and then it's your job to grip in the middle. If I'm lucky. Labour people, left-wing people listen to this and go, well, just pay people more, increase benefits, and then you stop people using food banks. It's really simple. But you say it's more than that. So, so what is the, the extra bit that's not about money? Well, it's the, it's the unpleasant side of poverty, which is domestic violence neglect and child abuse, intergenerational employment, hopelessness, people that have given up hope of ever working again because they used to, their, their grandfather worked in a mine and since then nobody's worked. You know, some of them are complicated around behaviour and some of them are less complicated around a, a structural system that is gatekeeping people out of work. And so, you know, for example, right, this is, this is, this is a real on the cusp one really awkward one. If you said to the country, okay, everybody, we are going to support families that have two children. So up to two children, job done, we'll make sure that they get support. If they choose to have more children, then we draw the line at that. There has to be a line where actually people know that the state can only support you to a certain point. And that's what they've done. And then you look at the complexity of, of, a, of a super poor group of people, particularly women, lone mothers, where essentially the fact that they have not had the easiest of starts in life, quite often they've come from a very challenging background themselves, their self-esteem and self-worth is low, their educational attainment doesn't get them on, and essentially for all sorts of reasons they may have um, children with different so they have one guy they fall in love with he says he'll take care of her you have your first baby he leaves and next guy arrives ostensibly saying he's happy to be a stepdad he's not he wants his own baby third guy comes and goes wants another baby and so you end up with a woman that essentially is on a limited benefit level which on face value you know date agreed in advance don't have extra children after this stage blah and so where are, where are people in that? Because I can see it from both points of view. Um, and so I think the way into some of that is to make sure the basics, you know, it, it goes fully back to what is the biggest solution to, what's the silver bullet on social policy, particularly around poverty, education and employment. And that's why what's happened in the last 12 months you know, I'm, I'm sorry people are upset that they've had to have their kids at home. And I'm, I'm sorry that, you know, uh, all of those things have happened and I'm sure it's been a real pressure but the people I am beyond worried about are struggling families uh, and particularly when you think you know we neither said to people don't worry if you don't have a, a mobile phone or a tablet you know we'll we're not going to pretend that you can learn from home nor did we give them one and at the beginning, that was acceptable, Matt. At the beginning, I, I was in the middle of, you know, chaos myself, trying to work out how to get everybody in off the street. 
and how to do that at, at pace and you know and that's something I have experience in so I should know how to do it uh, and certainly I've worked with local government really closely so I knew what levers to pull so I get it's difficult but when we were still talking about it in the autumn I feel rage running through my system because I know where that will end up and it will end up particularly with women and children sorry there are men definitely I'm not saying that and there's lots of good men in the world without a doubt but the brunt of something like the pandemic in in poverty is is carried by women and children in a way you've had the you've had the career of a cabinet minister in a way like John Reed you get sent to the places that are failing and you have to effectively tell the truth about what's going on here and be fearless in trying to design these solutions um what it means is you're often working some of the most troubled areas on some of the thorniest issues with some of the darkest things that go on in society before we talk about maybe some of those specifically is there a price to be paid for that for you personally because you're seeing a lot of stuff and does that not take its toll on you as an individual well i think my uh friend uh, matt i recognize this is like a bloody confessional mate um you know look at me uh, you know i'm hardly a pin-up for success in many ways i'm overweight i'm unfit I don't have children and I'm single. Well, that makes you highly uh, eligible. You know, uh, and I'm driven uh, by, by, I mean, I, you know, I, I, even the issue of social care uh, for, for the elderly, like, frustrates me. Yes, of course, it's a national issue and of course it affects everyone. Bloody affects some people more than others. You know, let's 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 take a look at that one. You know, you can strip apart each one of these things, and and um, and you can see it's a bit like the pandemic. I like I, I said last year, it's like it's a huge storm that we're all in, right? We're all in the storm together. That's what makes it so unusual. Is that most of the stuff that I work on is for some other person, so it's not the people commissioning the policy. It's always tackle homelessness because homelessness isn't happening to the mainstream uh, go out onto housing estates and try and bring down anti-social behavior which sounds you know anti-social behavior that's where people like David Blunkett were extraordinary because uh, he knew from his housing estate and his, you know, we used to call him the minister for Sheffield yeah. it's like everything was Sheffield all the time every single thing you know the leafy shires didn't get a looking but you know, he, he did something around. We did something around littering. I think that appealed to the leafy shires. <laughs> but, you know, it, it, so I'm talking talking around. It's the personal toll. It, you know, I've I've had I've had a really good run of it, and I have some absolutely fantastic friends, and I have I have a network of friends within like the civil service and elsewhere. Um, uh, uh, yeah, I'm very lucky, and you know got to have a bit of a sense of humour, but I flip it on the side that, you know, who else has been able to be involved in some of these things? It's been extraordinary. It's been an extraordinary time and I'm lucky actually, Matt, and if the price you pay is, you know, 
a bit on the personal side, then then it's worth it. But you've there's obviously something about the way you do the job and the way you discharge your duties is that it, I think the danger for some people is they would make their name somewhere like Shelter like you did. They get brought into government early. Now, it may not be a nice desk in a night's office. It's in a basement, but they might go, I've arrived here. I've got a little thing that says number 10 on it. I'm going to start doing lunch, something I wasn't previously aware of, but now I like it. And they'd get a bit cosy. And yeah, occasionally they'd say, Tony, I think we should do a bit more. But they kind of get seduced. And you saw it with so many politicians. And the same must happen to civil servants as well, is that they go, they kind of assimilate a bit. So in a way, how do you how do you prevent yourself from and it's not that the people you're working with are bad or lazy or anything like that how do you maintain I guess how do you maintain that intensity that you bring in on day one right through to the day that you leave and is it possible well I mean I think the the trick surely is that you have your eye the focus it's the spotlight it's the driving force of you know working out how to get the job done and then if it's not working being honest about the fact it's not working and doing something else or you know the, the job is to solve the problem and sometimes when you start down that route you don't necessarily know what the answer is and it's being as I got older and more secure and had you know great teams around me and I you know over that 20 year period to be honest it was like tag teams I've had very uh, there's a group of people that I used to pull back and walk forward so um you know deputies that would almost bat and pass depending which role I was in so that they didn't do the whole 20 years but I had really fantastic uh people number twos in particular uh, and teams that were f we were all familiar with each other, um, which is the upside of the civil service actually, is that, you know, when you're heading into something, you can sort of look across and think, God, I wonder if Neil is available or Joe is available or Ian is available. And, and then you have a way of working that you become familiar with and they're familiar with it. And, you know, I, I had a communications woman that worked for me for 10 years, you know, she managed a decade. I mean, that's a, that's a bloody, she deserves a medal, that's for sure. Well, I, but I imagine, I imagine you'd be good to work for. Oh, I, well, up and down. Mm, uh, <laughs> the person that you know, you meet the target. You all go out, you get absolutely hammered, and then the next morning, I go in and say, right. Anyway, I didn't think that was good enough, and I, I you know, I, I, I had to learn not to be a right role pain in the ass, and, and, and that, you know, and and that's the. the you know, not to be totally driven. The I whole guess time. you're being paid to be in a pain in the arse, aren't you? I guess it's about whose arse you're a pain in and when. That's really interesting. I said to Hayward once, you're paying me to be difficult. Um, and actually, there's a, there's a classic civil service moment with a permanent secretary, or two civil servants, very lovely, fantastic civil servant called David Normington, who remains a friend, who would just be so fantastic to have back in the centre of departments right now with that level of experience and calmness and manner. And of course, he'd got, him and Jackie Smith had got me back to the Home Office to, you know, uh, cause trouble, really, uh, shake up the police and do something around um, the, the public trust in the criminal justice system. So, of course, I thought, great, out of the salt mine, uh, 
back in his apartment. <laughs> Get on, here we go. Great. And I was like, well, I think you'll find what you're doing in policing isn't good enough. And I think, no, actually, I think we need to look at that, look at that. So then they, they tried. This is the first and only time anybody tried to do an annual review. And so I then get called in by Normo, who says to me, oh, you know, it's outstanding, but I just wondered if you could perhaps tone it down slightly, maybe bring a few more people with you, perhaps. You know, it's really lovely that you're back and you're doing sterling work. Maybe I was like, you get me back in here. You're paying me to be difficult. That's exactly why I'm here. You know, it just, of course, now I realise that I should have gone, you know, there are different ways of getting, you know. So you learn, Matt, you learn as you get older. But, um, and I always felt that I was neither a politician nor a civil servant. And that people still would refer to me as an outsider when I'd been in the civil service longer than half the people I was talking to. It just used to really amuse me. Me and Sharon White, who now runs John Lewis, Lewis Partnership. I remember, you know, like Jeremy and Gus O'Donnell had this top group, they called it the top 200. I think they had to stop calling it 200 because it dropped to 100. But anyway, and, you know, we'd all somewhere to have, you know, amazing speeches and be motivated. And we'd sit at the back like schoolgirls and I'd go, oh, Jesus, Sharon, how soon can we get out of here and go to a bar? I mean, <laughs> you know, that wasn't my cloth. But, it's, but the irony is that's also really important work. And that actually you do want a high functioning group of people and they were right to do all of that work and right to be good at it. But that just wasn't my bit. And as I said, towards the end, you know, I'm I would still they were still but I'm their outsider. That, do you see what I mean? So I yes. still am outside, but I was theirs. And, and that's what the crossbench peerage is all about. Um, that, was, that was Jeremy Hayward, Sue Gray, Helen McNamara, and Mark Sedwell, and all of the others putting me along. I'm in there for public service and, and to be an expert on public service. So you know, I nearly fell over when, when that happened. So, Well, it's a huge achievement. Um, just before we talk about that, Am I thinking about this in the wrong way? Or is the danger that if you're the person there to tell uncomfortable truths and to ruffle feathers, that sometimes feathers might not need to be ruffled, but you're Louise Casey and these guys are expecting the Louise Casey show and you better get annoyed about something. Or I guess there's always someone to help, so there'd always be something to get. No, I think that's you know, right. I, about. No, I think that that's completely correct. So not all of it is ruffling feathers and doing difficult. I mean, I would say the integration review, which which was a review over two years eventually, um, was not about ruffling feathers and and you know it was trying to find a way through what was a very complicated and difficult set of issues. Um, the inspection into Rotherham uh, back in, in 2016 was quite the opposite. And actually joking aside, in, when I was in the salt mines, I did my first review for the government into crime and communities where, you know, I think, you know, I, I would say that m most of the time, I would say you have, you know, two charm and menace, and you, you have to make sure it's 95% charm and 5% menace. And, and, you know, that, that's the way to get most things done. That was my, that's my gift to delivery. Uh, my next book will be one sheet of A4. My first book will be one <laughs> sheet of A4, 
just say the other thing is I'm a great believer in somebody else told me this which I, I learned from Nick Hardwick actually uh, who, who I think his last job was the prisons inspector but Nick said once the way to deal he, he was seconded in actually under under the last conservative administration on homelessness and his view was the civil service is too much no because rather than yes but and I, 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 I got that as soon as he said it. I thought, how interesting that actually when a guy is, or a woman has gone and got themselves elected and what they want to do is do something, they get themselves elected, they knock on the door, they have to persuade the public to vote for them and you have to respect that. And I think that's, that's, that's what you have to remember when you're a czar is, is that you, you have to respect that you're not the somebody. I never did personal interviews like this, ever. Would never in a million years have done a podcast like this for, the, for those 20 years. I would only ever do interviews, you know, on my policy area when needed and when required. Um, and sometimes supplanting ministers to do that, if that suited people or not. Your job is to go out and do the, the difficult story not the win story, you step back and let the win go to the politician who's being good enough to get themselves elected and good enough to set the policy, you deliver it. And you deliver it by saying, yes, Minister, I can deliver two thirds rough sleeping, but we need to do it this way. And I think when people get above themselves, and you know, I'm pretty above myself, as I hear myself talking on your podcast, I'm a bit worried how bonkers and above myself I will stand but the truth is you can never be above the person that's got themselves politically elected that's that's democracy and I felt some of the people that came and went were people that got seduced by the power and seduced by the media and you know found themselves you know thinking it's okay to do question time and have views on everything I have declined question time and any questions for 20 years uh, I'm just psyching myself up to the moment I might actually say yes because my view is the taxpayer is paying me to do what the government of the day has set out as one of their priorities that's my job it's not to you know nobody would ever want this for me but you know it's not a fashion shoot uh, or you know homes and gardens or uh, all of that stuff or, or, or going on programs and having views on something that is simply not what you're paid to have or what your public role is but you did have, and this was this kind of came with a job, and this wasn't your choice. A lot of profile, a lot of scrutiny, a lot of quite nasty coverage, particularly early on. And I remember it. I mean, this is when I was first getting into politics, sort of early teens, seeing you in the paper a lot. And you were a hero to me. And I thought the way some of the people wrote about you was appalling, even then. And I just wonder. If you can't effectively defend yourself publicly in that way, what, what that pressure does to you, whether it was water off a duck's back, whether it affected you in any way. Well, it's not water off a duck's back. I mean, you know, the Daily Mail for years picked the most ugly picture they could possibly find of me. You know, that's probably quite a lot of choice, but anyway, um, yeah, God love me, really. But <laughs> they made it their job to find the worst and then it's a lot of personal stuff you know and of course I never I mean this is the first time I've admitted to being you know single childless and slightly overweight and probably drink too much rosé um 
but you know I've never gone there but they go there um I, I, I think the other thing is that some of the stuff which now we would just bank in was quite tough really it's like people do want to think the solution to homelessness is handing out money to people on the streets and they don't want to think that that those people actually might be a drug addict and what you're doing is actually giving them a quid towards scoring their next thing and actually that maintains them in a problem rather than helping them get out of a problem you know John Bird um, obviously he's a bloke so he didn't have quite the same stuff and he basically got fantastic you know idea of the big issue back in the day and you know John Bird used to say it's a hand up not a hand out and I've stood by that I mean that's exactly my approach to these issues as well and would be on food banks it's a hand up not a hand out and I think you know yeah I mean you know thank god I wasn't in a world of social media you know one wonders how awful that would be for I, I, I mean I'm I'm a silent person on I Twitter, I, I follow people and I'm interested in it, but it's pretty brutal around they women. They call that a lurker. Oh, so am I a lurker? That's what they call it, yeah. Happy to be a lurker. <laughs> Louise the Lurker Casey. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like a book. I mean, social media is bad enough, but the, I mean, it's only, the tabloids at the time were huge. They were huge. That so was as bad as, in many ways, actually, it was worse, I think. Well, they did things like they they went you know they went down my mum like you know my dad had passed away whilst I was at shelter and um you know my mum was an older mother so she she died when she was 80 actually and actually to be fair Sherry Blair and Tony Blair I mean it's really interesting the people that reach out on the personal front um and I she kind of understood what I got up to for a living. I mean, you know, charity work. Um, but, you know, it's like, why aren't you married? I mean, you know, why aren't you married? And, you know, can't you find yourself somebody to get married to and have children? And it's like, well, you know, I'm with the homelessness of Tony Blair, but, you know, in my spare time, you know, because she can't say her, you know, her worldview. And then they used to send people to the street to talk to neighbours about, you know, and once they got her home phone number because it was easy to get and they rang her and said oh you know we, we just want some background on your daughter she's um you know this is amazing she doesn't know this yet but we think she's you know in an honours list by the queen so we'd like some background detail on her and this is when I was the homelessness I think well you know I got I mean I've had the privilege much later on of of, of, of um, having honours but you know that wasn't anything we thought about then and I just thought, what absolute fecking bastards to do that to my mother. And at the time, I didn't realise I could have done something about that, Matt. It was just much later on when actually one of the, the women who worked in Downing Street for Tony Blair said to me, you should have told us. It's like we could have done something about it. Because I didn't really, you do care about what they do to you. But I really cared about what they did to my mum. Yeah. Anyway, she's no longer with us, sadly. I just think it was such a, I just think they were treated appallingly. And I, I, I don't- You know, look, look how they treated Millie Dowler's family. Yeah. I, I mean, I was the victims commissioner at that point and had the privilege of meeting many um, parents, um, 
you know, there's that there's one thing I think it's out of the order of things, isn't it? Like our parents die before us, our children don't skip over. Like there's there's a rite of passage, and at the end of the day, we are animals. We might be sophisticated animals, but you know, we grow old, we die, our children take over. So the first thing that's really strange about children passing away is it's out of the order of things. No parent wants their child to die ahead of them. If you layer on top of that, that that death has been caused by another human being, it's almost impossible to live with it, it, it because it's not natural causes. Because I've met, I did a lot of work. When I became the Victims Commissioner, I decided having done antisocial behaviour and what's perceived as low level crime, I thought we ought to start right at the other end of the system and see what was happening for victims, families, essentially, and, and where they were in the system. And I was staggered uh, by how little um, rights, support, help they had. And as I said to um, Ken Clark, who was, you know, I was in the cull of, um, Quangos when they first arrived and we were definitely on the list. The bonfire of the Quangos. The bonfire of the Quangos. Certainly the Victims Commissioner was in that bonfire. And again, I, I you know, thank God, got to see him and uh, with actually some fantastic civil servants on the Ministry of Justice side and, and we, we survived that. But I remember saying to him, look, the, the thing is, it's almost like you lose your wallet, your wallet is nicked, you'll almost get the same service than if my child was murdered by somebody. It, it, it's so bonkers the way our system is created. But then I, you know, then I met so many families who've been bereaved and, you know, the treatment of the media is just, it, it, it's one of the standout things uh, and particularly the Dowlers and, and what, what they did to that couple in court as well, to her in particular, it's, it's just appalling. Anyway. So, you know, your mum getting a bit of a hard time from a journo has to be seen in the perspective of what they do when they essentially near torture families in that case. When you mention being childless, men in your position and in society in general and in leadership don't get judged for that at all. Um, and I hope this comes out the right way, because actually this had occurred to me to kind of put this to you before this interview. And I didn't know whether you had children or not. And it's based on what someone else actually had said to me about someone else. But in the work that you've done, you've effectively been a kind of a mother to so many people, to people in Rotherham, to the, to the homeless. You've, you've done something on such a grand scale in so many different ways that you might not have children of your own, but the children you've helped in this country potentially millions of people. So I guess in a way, I don't, know whether, I don't know whether there's a question at the end of this, more of an observation, but in a way you, are, you, you have been a mum. You've been a mum to so many people. And well, it's, uh, I don't know whether that matters to you or not, but you know, I think- uh, it, it, it does actually, Matt, interestingly. So I think the plight of low income and poor families who we're trapping, in poverty, like the growth of the working poor as a phenomena since 2010. And, you know, oh God, there was this moment um, that I was at the food bank. It's actually, it was a community centre that's flipped to being a, a, a food 
bank because of the pandemic and we're at the front because people can't come in and that's mainly dealing with people who it's not easy to get delivered food to because they're too all over the shop anyway handing out food and saw this girl in the in the corner of my eye with these two small children and she was just hanging back and anyway you're right yeah you're right uh, closing up but is there something you want so she said I wondered if I could have a pint of milk <laughs> and so I you know bring her over and these people the volunteers in this place are absolutely cracking and you know um, Belinda then says to her let's not stop at a pint of milk what else can we get you and then you know what you got and everything in my body wanted to walk put my arm around her I did have my arm around her and I wanted to walk her back to her flat I wanted to get in her flat I wanted to fire up the lecky key so she had electric I wanted to get gas on so there was hot water I wanted to open a fridge and say, what do you need? Like, what can we get you? You know, can we get you a fecking Ocado delivery of your choice rather than you standing there seeing what donations have been made today and what you can make of those donations? Like, let's just get you, you know, Sainsbury's or whatever. And, you know, and that's when I know I still have something in me <laughs> because I know that I want to do something about that. Um, and, you know, I'll carry on, really, Matt, until till somebody stops me. As long as those, as long as those 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 women and those children and those families and those men need it. I had a guy, I had a guy down in Bexley, who'd been working as a security bloke on a you know on a pub, you know, wiping tears from his eyes because he couldn't provide. Big big bruising bouncer that, you know, was used to being on a nightclub somewhere in South East London. He isn't furloughed, is he? No. You know, it's just, you know, it's not everybody that's furloughed. And like, he's standing there at a food bank outside, because I always find it interesting who's hanging around, who are the people that come in and who are the people that hang back and look. Mm -hmm. And I think those people are often the people that you need to go and go, it's all right, mate. Nobody can blame you for losing that job fucking state the country's in viruses everywhere come on mate come in this door oh, the, the, you can f the pride of people though yeah you never come in that uh, you know and what you've got to do is it's a bit yeah you know, and i work with a certain group of people and other people can work you know we're all different and sometimes that's why you know i mean you know i haven't i'm not always great with young people <laughs> <laughs> why not <laughs> you know i've been known i've been known i was i was when i was volunteering i was um i was in center point night shelter and we were setting up a special one over the winter and it was at the back of soho square batesman's buildings and you know i was like there all weekend cleaning it putting you know post-it notes up about what was here and there and everywhere and like we were all i was i don't know how i was you know probably you know absolutely excited to help people you know it was all about me really i guess in some ways because it is actually some of this is about the gift of giving that gives to you really rather than to them anyway there we are i then think oh right okay 
Pizza Express in Dean Street. So I walk over to Dean Street and knock on the door and say, listen, you know, any chance, it's like a load of kids coming in later, any chance they go, oh yeah, lovely. We'll give you a load of pizzas arrived. We've got all these kids lolling about now, you know, and some of them are quite seasoned and they look at me, right. And the pizzas them, or the kids? No, the kids, the kids. So the pizzas are all in boxes, right. And they're all pepperoni or, or uh, Hawaiian, right? So they've all got me. This is, mm. I'm now talking instantly before I get drubbed by everybody, that this is like back in the days when being a vegetarian was really unusual and nobody knew what a vegan was. Okay. And so I'm glowing with the kind of joy of getting free pizza. I mean, to me, all my Christmases have arrived. Yeah. And the fact they've got me, I mean, you know. So this, guy, this kid then goes, I go, yep, yep, what's up, what's up? You're, I'm a vegetarian. So then as a rise, they all decided they were vegetarian. <laughs> so I go, literally, literally like Sister Rita's in the room or my mother, I go, well, you'll go hungry then, won't you? I mean, I'm literally now like body swerved out of the, out of the building and told in no uncertain terms that this isn't the way you should treat young people. So obviously I've been very nervous about young people and working with them. Give me some... You know, some old bloke that's been out on the streets for years or, or, or what we used to call bag ladies. I'm your woman. But an empowered youth that decides to have views. You know, I'm only teasing. I've got better at it, Matt, but, you know. But you have something else that the risk sometimes that might befall someone who's been put in the positions you've been put in is that assimilation or getting comfy with a nice desk in a nice department and being close to power. The other risk sometimes with people who see a lot of and deal with a lot of shocking stuff homelessness, child abuse, poverty. The worst things you can imagine in society is that actually after a while, they not get inured to it, but it, it, perhaps they lose that desire. They, they, they see it so often that the shock, you know, I could see in your face that woman asking for a pint of milk was totally shocking to you. Now, there are lots of people who, who work in those areas that go, well, of course she's asking for a pint of milk. You know, and, and almost the shock of that is lost, but what you've retained I don't know whether that's what is part of what drives you or you have that because you're driven, but to still be shocked by stuff when you've seen so much shocking stuff seems to be a, a, a really important character trait for you. Well, I think it's, um, uh, it's empathy, isn't it? That when people, I, I'm not shocked by that, but I'm, bereft with sadness that I live in one of the richest countries in the world in the middle of a pandemic and I've got a mum who has never claimed anything of no one and she asked for a pint of milk and that I that just you know I find that a bit devastating Matt and I feel that you know what we were able to do for her is too limited and and you know, I, I guess I, you know, I'm long on empathy, I guess. Empathy, not sympathy sometimes as well. So. You're suffering from long empathy. You get something for that. <laughs> yeah, it, it's called a bar bill, but anyway. But um, why not sympathy then? Well, I think, I think you shouldn't, you have, obviously sympathy is a really important thing, but empathy is trying to understand and feel what the other person is going through and, allowing it to shape your response whereas feeling sorry for somebody doesn't get them out of poverty 
understanding what's going on in their lives, being touched by it and hoping to touch them so that they feel that Tessa Jowell shine a light thing means that you can change. You know, this is all about giving people the right option at the right time in order to take it. A lot of it's around self-esteem. It's about the right breaks, you know. Leveling up would start with education. It would start with hunger. It, you know, we'd, we'd start in, in these families. Um, we, we can't have, we can't have more food banks than, than, you know, High Street Mackie D's. I mean, that's just an epitaph that no politician should want on their, on their sheet, really. We mentioned Rotherham a couple of times, and I don't want to go into too much detail, but what was interesting about your report was it was assessing Rotherham's council's reaction to the investigation and how they'd handled it, and you effectively find that it's not fit for purpose and the culture there was one of casual sexism, I think casual racism as well, just how, I mean, reading it, as I say, I worked in local government for a bit. I worked for the mayor of Stoke-on-Trent. Reading parts of that, I don't think Stoke-on-Trent Council was anywhere near as bad, but I think anyone who's worked in local government would recognise, even if they worked for a very good council, would think, oh, crikey, um, some of it rings true. I mean, I guess the most shocking thing is that they just didn't take that initial report, let alone the abuse, the report, the report that they exposes it, they were just so defensive about. Um, how shocking was it for you to find that culture there? Well, I mean, it was, it was weird, actually, because on day two, you know, we, we arrived out of Planet London in, in, into Rotherham, you know, in the same Whitehall clothes that I'd have, I'd have worn to, to walk into Whitehall. Uh, you know, I was just dressed in black. And, you know, like, these dressed in black figures arrived into Rotherham Interchange. And, you know, when I, when I think about it now, it's a bit of a hoot, really. And I was like, what? There are only three trains an hour between Donny and Rotherham. So what we've got a right, okay, you know, it's, it's one carriage. One carriage. The windows don't open. Yeah, and everybody looked at us because we looked really weird because we were all dressed in black. Somebody had square glasses. I mean, it was a fucking nightmare. Sorry. Black men in black, like Will Smith. It was like women in black. Honest, honest <laughs> God. Um, you know, uh, and one of the key people had square glasses if she worked for Channel 4. I mean, we were, and I was in a Mac, you know, it was with our trolley bags. And, you know, that was the start. And then, and then um, I then start meeting the leadership, both politically and opposite. And one of the first things that we, we worked out on day two is that they had spent more money on training children's services staff to deal with Ofsted and other inspectors than they had on their entire child sexual exploitation team. And I thought, right, <laughs> okay, I was going to try and give you a little bit of the benefit of the doubt. I'm sure you're all good people and you didn't want this to happen, but it did happen and you let it happen. And I think the thing for us about, so, you know, obviously Alexis J had been in there at their behest and done this report. And you sort of thought, God, bang to rights, really. <laughs> and then I was like, what? You don't, and so, so the key thing to get across in that it was one of the hardest things I've ever done was the writing up of the foot. So the Rotherham Inspection Report is in two halves. 
there's the story and the kind of the denial, the inability to accept what had gone on, the treatment, the testimony and the witness of the victims and essentially the story of Rotherham. And then there was an inspection report that went chapter and verse through their children's services, their use of taxis, you know, and, and, and we had to put it together in a way. And by then, uh, you know, had just the most phenomenal team. Um, actually, after Rotherham, we didn't see much of each other for a while um, because it had been so hard for us to do. Uh, and obviously, I, I was living, you know, I was there Sunday to Friday and then came home Friday night late, got my act together on Saturday, clean clothes, all the rest of it. And then I'd start working again. I mean, I didn't see anybody for about six months. I worked on Boxing Day. I mean, it was because we got back at Christmas and I just had this feeling that we needed to go and get more. I didn't I didn't feel that we had enough of the case because what we had to do was have a case that would go like that. We were going to topple that place we were going to topple it because they couldn't carry on. That was my goal, was that, which at, at the team's goal as well, that Daisy, Sarah, all of us, we wanted to bring them down because that's what the victims deserved, not another strategy or another training course or something else. We wanted to remove democracy from that place because they didn't deserve to have it. And that's why it was such a difficult report to write, why we had to do it under parliamentary privilege, uh, because I named certain people in the report. I passed files to the National Crime Agency. And we had, I mean, we really like, we had Mary, we had two really senior women, which was great to work with because I had never done an inspection report in my life. And I've never inspected a local authority and I've never actually worked directly in the local authority. So the, the first thing we did, I did, was like reach out. So we got a really seasoned former chief executive of a local authority, older woman, my age, a bit more, really tough, seen it all, done it. She and a woman who'd worked at Ofsted, they ran the actual inspection. And I was like, you know, doing all of the accounts with the victims and listening to them. And then I was in files and trying to find things and piece together what had happened and why and then fight people off you know we had some people that wanted to look at files and it was like something out of a film you know there what was a people? moment who they were now actually I think it could have been the local authority lawyer so the local authority lawyer and a woman who was representing them decided I had a load of files locked in a room and uh, we, we 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 wanted them and nobody else we thought we found the files and I get a, a call from, I'm upstairs and uh, the, the, a police officer and our lawyer was downstairs and they got access to this room. And, you know, you have to go down. I go down and I, I, I look at them and I went, I, I just need to make it really clear that I have been appointed by the government under this section of this act. If you don't leave this room, I'm going to instruct that police officer to arrest you. Um, that's your call. Very happy to talk to you upstairs. Will not allow you to be in this room with these files. Wow. I mean, it got it got really heated at different points. And that's why, Matt, you know, I can't, I, I so believe in public sector and public service. And I believe in the concept of a public servant. And I have this long, deep 
belief that, um, you know, if you're in public service, your first point is to get up every day and try and do the right thing. And I think what I found really hard about Rotherham, and it's caused me to think about my own life and whether I've done the right thing at all times and how, how could we have let this happen? You know, from the, from the children homes that we put these girls into, when they had been abused at home already, we then took them into care. The people that did the bins knew that something wasn't right in one of the children's homes. The, the taxi drivers that picked them up outside who were licensed by the local authority without question, even when they had criminal offences, to the, you know, the homes that they were trafficked, raped and tortured in that were owned by people in that community. It was everywhere and yet nobody had thought to stand up and do the right thing. And if they had, they'd been sat on. And so I think it's probably the toughest thing I've done because we just intuitively believe, and that's partly about politicians as well, actually, that you know, if you're in public life, your public service, then your job is to, and I I felt I felt for a while I reeled from it's not an individual, it wasn't this social worker or that police officer, but culturally, the lack of challenge, the fact that, you know, you, you, I went through one night, um, a, an archive file, and I could see how we'd started talking about this child as a child, child A. Months later, she's called an adolescent she's not called a child anymore. Then you're using words like teenager, and then the word wayward arrives. And so just in a very, very, that's the same child, right? Yeah. Who on her 13th birthday was raped and tortured by perpetrators that are now in prison. She never gave evidence they were done for other people. And they said to her, happy birthday, you now have the ability to give consent nobody will believe you that you didn't consent to this and that's the case that essentially went from a child now you and I would think of as a child as a youngster that we should protect to a wayward teenager and I think that's where I think it's like a dial that moves people think things happen really shocking don't they so you think you're going to be shocked by something but actually most of the time in these really difficult things they're small things that move around, small things, small things on the dial. You know, nobody thought in those case conferences and in those meetings that that girl was going to end up raped, right? But they allowed their dial to move and move and move the same way we still have kids now that will run away, go missing for 30 times, and nobody will find out what else is happening in that household or that family. What they'll do, if we're lucky, is do a returning home interview. And so nobody looks up from that child and say, who is the dad and where is he? In prison. Okay, right. How's the mum doing? Oh, okay. Doesn't get off the settee or actually is really, really struggling or has got five children. Nobody looks up and into the system. And that's what happened in Rotherham. What happened in Rotherham is a story of where people let their dial move and move and move. And that's the shocking thing. And that's the thing that 
you have to ask yourself as well if you're in public service you know did did your dial go if you if you let it go and and to be aware of it always constantly aware of the dial and the danger is that that or something like that some other scandal where abuse or negligence leads to these well you know where abuse goes uncovered or for whatever reason systemic failures is that this, this could have happened elsewhere it's not just rotherham where this could have happened other things could happen elsewhere so if louise casey was to design almost the perfect state what things do you need and what things i mean should every local authority have a kind of czar that's not the chief exec that's not a a, a portfolio holder or a head of service that that is just there to basically check the dials for want of a better phrase that's what elected politicians that's what lead members should be doing Mm. in a way you know and let's go back to rotherham i've seen the best of public service and the best of councillors you know people like judith blake from leeds who was the leader of leeds for years and now has gone into the house of lords an exceptional person at holding her portfolio before she was the leader she was children and families you know, she was somebody I leaned on, you know, I mean, there are many more, I'm just quoting her because she she was so present around trying to figure out the Rotherham stuff. You know, part of me thinks that that's the point of councillors. Now in Rotherham, we had elected councillors who didn't pay their council tax. That doesn't surprise me at all. <laughs> well, I, me you know yeah, people, i mean god people, the standard of some local politicians where we can have local authority uh councillors that have non if you have a non-custodial sentence for child abuse you can still stand as a local authority that's member. right because you don't miss a full council meeting so i mean all of those things i didn't know i had this naive notion uh, uh, about democracy and about our elected members and our elected elected uh, and non-elected house of lords house of you know i had no idea that there were still hereditary peers in in the house of lords there was a classic moment i was with carolyn quinn on uh, on her westminster hour and somebody you know it was live and uncut and somebody said to me something like, what do you think of hereditary peers and i say what what do you mean hereditary peers I mean, surely to God, didn't somebody get rid of them? Who are these toffs to think <laughs> of being? I mean, it's a, it's a terrible piece of radio. And of course, some of these are ready fears that you know, we rely on for, for various policy issues. It transpires. Yeah. But the very idea that we would have hereditary peers who can just put themselves in Parliament, it's just like unbelievable to me. But anyway. the idea of any peers is unbelievable to some people, isn't it? People oh, say the House of Lords should be elected, it shouldn't be appointed. Yeah. Yeah. Um, What's it like being in there? What's it, and what's it like being Louise Casey in the house? No, I'm, I haven't gone in yet. I haven't got in yet. I haven't been introduced. They're not letting you in. <laughs> not for the likes of you. I think there's been a mistake. <laughs> you slagged us off on the Westminster hour. Make her wait a couple more months. Yeah, she can wait a long time. No, it's my fault. I've been, um, I, I, you know, I've had a pretty busy COVID work-wise and... Um, I, I think, I mean, what I must do is get, if they'll allow me, is to get introduced before summer recess and then start properly in September. But I'm not, I'm not a half measures woman, really. So I'd, I'd actually want to get my head around what you're supposed to do as a crossbench peer and who everybody is and how often I'm supposed to be there and all of that stuff. So but you, you get to have a, a lovely bookend um, when you get your robes. 
because you can do to the House of Lords what those young people in Pizza Express did to you. And when they offer you the ermine, you can say, I'm vegetarian. <laughs> and they will have to give you fake fur. Well, I've already agreed to whichever society writes to you when you automatically, you, know, you get an automatic letter saying, please don't use ermine, go fake. And I've already gone back saying, of course. Well, there you go, already. Louise, we've spoken right. for nearly two hours. I know, I'm sorry. Don't... No, 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 I'm, I'm sorry that I've, 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 I've kind of abused your uh, generous nature and your time. I mean, this, I don't so think much... I've even scratched the surface of the things I wanted to ask you about, and I mean that. What I wanted to end on, actually, was, was a question that only just occurred to me. <laughs> I don't think I've ever asked any other guests this, but it's just given the work you've done and continue to do, has it changed your perception of humanity? And, and, and are you an optimistic person or, or a pessimist? Oh, well, I'm definitely an optimist. And, you know, for all of all talking about, like, the, 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 the tough stuff, I think, you know, I just think, Matt, that, I mean, look at last year, I mean, look at this year. Look, look at the fact that we've had polling in January that 74% of the public want to keep the 20 quid uplift on universal credit. You know, I, I, I mean, I think that the public's capacity, I get asked and I put myself in looking at the tough stuff, but you have to balance it out by the fact that I think most people are utterly decent I think even people that fall by the wayside, we all will at some point, and we're lucky if we don't in life, with the right help, you can be pulled back up from that wayside. I think that the public's capacity to be compassionate is incredible. Um, I think we've talked about the downside of the media. I've had countless people who have, you know, sent me a text or, you know, there, there is quite a lot of camaraderie, I think, um, out there and, you know, you, you 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 think of all the people that you do something like Desert Island Disney, they all try and get in touch with you, which is really, really sweet. And it's just this outpouring of compassion, um, which I think, which I think, sadly, politics doesn't always inhabit that. But it is true to say that for every difficult situation, there's like 10 or 15. And, you know, I love I love dealing with all these quirky and challenging people. I love it. What a wonderful, hopeful, positive note to end on. Louise Casey, thank you so much. Well, Louise Casey, I told you it was worth the full listen, and I hope you agree. I don't see how you couldn't. Oh, so much phenomenal detail there. And it really felt like, uh, not that we were in the pub together, but although it kind of did at times, but just... There are times when you're just having a fantastic conversation. And I know I say this periodically, and I always think it. I think you would struggle for stimulation to find something better than a really good conversation with someone like Louise Casey. And so many of the guests on the show, but people who've had that sort of experience, people who think so clearly, people with that personality and drive, I think asking them about their career, getting their opinion on the problems we face. And obviously what makes Louise so special is she's, she's kind of dealing with both ends. So you get the benefit of the behind the scenes corridors of power stuff, what I said to the prime minister's face and how they reacted, 
twinned with that restless desire for change and knowing where the front line is, seeing the grim realities, the underbelly of British society. Um, that's just, uh, just the way she approaches the job. And I think so, so many of the lessons that come out of this podcast actually are about when people get put into posts, how do you define yourself early? What are the pitfalls? What are the mistakes you make and how do you learn from that? Now, you only learn that through experience and you, you need to be in jobs long enough and to be sometimes given second chances to, to learn those things and to put those right to have these sorts of careers. But obviously there's something about Louise, as there is about other successful civil servants and other successful cabinet ministers, um, because they have something that makes people go, okay, well, it took her a while to learn in that initial role about where she should be placed. But obviously there's a sense that she's on the right track, that she's doing the right thing, that she's asking the right questions. Now, you're not going to believe this, but even after all this time, sometimes what happens, is that I think the first time this has ever happened on the show actually is we finished recording and a guest will go, oh, I didn't get to tell you about this. And because I've hit stop, I think, oh, I can't record it. And I record, <laughs> just record it over Zoom. Um, and sometimes if it's been really long, I think, oh, well, you know what? It's nice to have that if they come back on in future. Um, but I was able to record this story. So there's an extra, I feel like Jeremy Beadle at the end of um, You've Been Framed, where he pretended the show was over and then there were a couple of clips. So here you go. For the first time in the history of this podcast, bonus extra content, a PS, an encore, if you like. Um, I'm, I couldn't leave this out, despite how long the conversation had already been. I couldn't leave this story out. So enjoy what is effectively uh, an encore, a bonus story triggered um, by the mention of John Reed. So, so, so I don't think they'll mind me telling you, it's just what you said about John Reed. So like half halfway through the first series of In the Thick of It, I'm sat downstairs thinking, oh, <laughs> <laughs> You know, that big guy that's the minister. So they're in the Prius, aren't they? Going down Milford. Oh, yes, 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 yes. Got either people either side. And, you know, the, the and your man from Downing Street calls up and says, um, oh, we've got the, we, we've got this, we, Pazbo's. And I'm like, so I, I text Daisy Yates, the woman that worked with me for a decade. Have you talked to anybody about PASBOs? No. What's it on? It's in the thick of it. So there's this great moment. I'm in Peel Buildings. Literally, I had an office in those days, and I'm there, and I'm like, you know, the desk. Daisy comes in, she went, I've got Steve Reed on the line for you. He's with John Reed, the Home Secretary. I went, all right. She said, uh, I said, what's it about? She went, I'll leave him to tell you. So then basically, Steve now is on the phone. Steve is on the phone. He said, Louise, Louise, I'm with the Home Secretary. I'm with John. I went, yep, yep, okay, good. Lucky you, uh, you know, and uh, yep, yep, good, good, good. We've had this phenomenal idea. I go, it's your worst nightmare, you know, all civil servants, you know, a minister's spad arrives and says, I've got this great idea. Your first reaction is, oh, Jesus, Mary and Joseph and all the saints be praised. Anyway, so I go, go on, Steve, you know, being nice. Go on, Steve, what's that then? He went, Pazbo's. So I'm literally now like war-torn with the amount of time I've had to justify Pazbo's. I'm 
you know, killed on the Today programme on a regular basis. Unlike that thing, you just slap around the place going, Asbo's good, slap, slap, slap. But everybody hates them. The Guardian write about them all the time. I've got all sorts of people onto me constantly. And I'm like this single person saying, no, they're good. They're useful. The public like them. So he says, Pasbos, he went, pet Asbos, what do you think? And I literally go, what the do you think, I think? I can't believe that you're ringing me to give me this absolutely absurd, in my life, you can tell John Reed if he can't hear me, my life is constantly defending Asbos. I am absolutely, no fucking, 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 I must have used the F word so many times. I said, is that all right then, everyone, gentlemen? That okay? Yes, yes, yes. No problem, Louise. It was just an idea. Got to do something about dangerous dogs. Right, right, thanks. And I look up at Daisy and go, we've seen that one off. <laughs> and, oh, I did not see it off. I mean, we ended up doing some sort of dangerous dogs legislation. And then literally I'm sat watching in the thick of it, chortling away, you know, a bit, you know. <laughs> and I was like that. Oh, my God. Who gave them Pazbos? What's going on? It's like, this is a nightmare. John Reed's going to think I gave in Mando Arnucci, you know. I've never even had a fucking cup of tea with him. No, no, not me, not me, not me. So funny. So, so funny. Well, I, I loved Asbos. I loved them. And I grew up on a street that needed them. Exactly. And we got burgled and there were nightmare neighbours we had. And there were, it was... There's nothing progressive about letting people who cannot afford to live anywhere else get terrorised in their own home. Exactly. And, and when Asbos, I think for me, of all the things that government did, the stuff on crime was by far the most profound. And all that Guardian stuff. I mean, I remember going to a Labour Party meeting and um, I think Asbos were being discussed. And I was just a kid, I was maybe 16. We were certainly talking about being tough on crime anyway. And they're all saying, oh, well, you know, the rights of the offender and all this. I said, can I ask if have any of you actually been burgled? <laughs> None of them had. I said, well, I have. And the people, we know who did it. There's no CCTV. It was it. It was about CCTV. I was like, get it on every street corner. Um, because without it, you can't put these people away. And uh, none of them have been burgled. I said, I think if you'd been burgled, you would, the, that, that awful, the, the feelings you go through after a burglary, let alone more serious crime. But anyway, Louise, I've kept you for more than two hours. No, let, let, I can't let you talk about CCTV without this. You mentioned <laughs> Robocop earlier, right? Yeah. Ray Mallon. Yes. Oh, anyway, right. I don't know what. I was in the Home Office. I don't know who the Home Secretary was, but, you know, small pot of money somewhere. Anyway, Ray Mallon, like, they get in touch from Middlesbrough. And so, God, absolutely great thing, Louise. We've got talking... CCTV. Oh yes, I remember this. Do you remember? Do you remember? Yes. Well, so I now think, wow. So I get on a train, I go up to Middlesbrough, we meet, I meet Ray. We're all we were all like, and then I then A see the CCTV where I'm in the thing and I'm the voice that says, Would the gentleman that's just dropped the McDonald's wrapper mind picking it up and putting it in the bin? And then they do it with me. So there's like this slightly rotund woman in a velvet, you know, uh, velvet thing from London, because of course I dress the same still to this day. And I'm like wandering around looking like I've just left, you know, uh, King's Cross. And so then I drop litter liberally and this voice beams out and they filmed it for BBC uh, Northeast, right? And everybody loves it. So that 
would the woman with the green scarf and the black coat pick up the rubbish she's just thrown on the floor? And I actually felt really embarrassed. I actually hadn't thrown anything on the floor and I would just mimic it. But I felt the full force of shame that you would feel. Well, we just, I just think this is mecca, right? I think this is absolutely brilliant. So I come back down to the home office and I go, right. So we then do, we basically write out to various local authorities with still the same great thing. We'll help you do uh, talking CCTV. Can you imagine the field day that people had about talking CCTV? I mean, it wasn't my finest hour. I realised I'd lost my mind and gone too far, that by now I was giving, you know, community safety partnerships money to spend on talking CCTV. And I got literally roasted by Eddie Mayer on uh, PM. He took me apart limb from limb from limb. I mean, you know, and it's one of the few interviews where I, at the end of it, I went, God, I suppose if you look at it a different way, it is a bit of an odd thing to do for the government live on national radio. I admit that this wasn't my finest. I said, well, you know, I think you've probably got a point. Maybe we shouldn't have done it. And like, you know, back in PR land in the home office, they go, why did you admit that that was a shite idea? What? I said, well, you know, I thought he had me. You can't say that on national radio. It's like, you know. They spent forty thousand pounds on. It. I went. I know. I know. But you know. Oh, you know. So funny. Right. The thick of it. <laughs> right. 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 Let's go. Sorry, Matt. No. God. No. Only thanks. This has been superb. Well, that really is all we've got time for. Thank you to Louise for being such a wonderful guest. Thank you to you as always for listening to this. I, it means so much that people listen to it at all. Hit subscribe, tell everyone about it, leave a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. Don't forget to download my other podcast as well, British Scandal, that you can get on every podcast provider. Um, buy tickets to the live shows, mattford.com slash live. And, uh, well, th- this, <laughs> this show needs no more chat, so I'll leave you to it, and I'll see you next time. ta